to tell you I've had a fun weekend and that's not good. <laughs> it's always not good to have fun with too many Christians because then I just want to see you more. So, uh, and I do live too far away to see you more. So that's, uh, But it's been special and I, I thank you so much uh, for uh, just the opportunity to, to be able to be with you, to uh, just have build, build some relationships and stuff. Uh, that that's fantastic. I was telling the elders earlier that it's just been uh, very special. It's always special to be able to get to know and connect with other Christians, to know you're here. I mean, goodness, uh, before Brent Mohair said noon in Georgia, I said, what? I wouldn't have had the slightest idea that, uh, you know, anything off of I-75 existed. Uh, so it's it's nice to know there is, and that's that's good. So I appreciate you a lot, and uh, certainly appreciate uh, uh, the good time that we've uh, we've had together. So thank you for all that. Uh, really, uh, Teresa and I really appreciate uh, uh, Joe and uh, his good wife uh, Ethel and the, the hospitality they've given us. Uh, it's been near miserable, wonderful. Uh, just been really nice. <laughs> No, what a special couple. I, I, uh, uh, we, we just uh, uh, felt comfortable immediately, and uh, that, that's uh, really, really nice. So I appreciate all of that. Well, take a look over in Matthew chapter 28. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 28, there is a somewhat disturbing text here, as we would read about. The Great Commission. I say disturbing. It's not disturbing from our point of view, but I would have to say that if I were the first century apostles, I would be extremely disturbed by what Jesus would say in this text to me prior to the time that he was about to leave and go to heaven. So listen carefully and note in your Bible, Matthew 28 18, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority is given in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Uh, You know, in order to appreciate that text, or really any text in the Bible, you have to put yourself in the position of those who were there originally. So think for a moment what it would be like to be one of the twelve. A bunch of you are fishermen. You came from Galilee, meaning that you couldn't read or write. You remember in Acts 4 when the Sanhedrin says these guys are ignorant and unlearned men? Sometimes we forget 15%. There was only about 15% of the Roman Empire that could read or write. So uh, if you think you have challenges to get the gospel out, think about those days. (laughs) All right? So uh, uh, here are the 12, and you've got a bunch of fishermen. You have a hated tax collector. you got a zealot who would uh, formerly have loved to just violently overthrow the Roman Empire. And you put them all in this one little group, and uh, Jesus says, uh, by the way, I'm getting ready to skedaddle back to heaven, but uh, what I want you to do is I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, 
baptize them and teach them to, to follow everything I've commanded you. Alright. Are you going to freak out or not? I mean, I'm sitting there, I'm going to, I, I just, the more I thought about that, I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> Look at this mess. <laughs> Look at these guys. We, we can't do that. That seems an absolutely amazing impossibility, which I can tell you. There is no question that Jesus purposely chose that kind of group to do this, to send a message to us. It isn't about you. There's two keys to this text that are really interesting. The first one that we don't pay a lot of attention to is in verse 18. Jesus begins his statement with, in so many words, from now on, I'm the king. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. I am now the king. I am going to heaven to sit on my throne and from here on I'm ruling. My first decree is get with it. Make disciples of all nations. You teach them what I've commanded you. You insist that that's what they have to do. I want you to make disciples. And so there's my first command. Secondly, and something that we so easily read over, is the last part of the sentence. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You've ever thought about just looking up in the Greek, the word behold, or as the old King James says, lo, I am with you always. I have to tell you, up until about 10 days ago, <laughs> I never bothered looking that word up. I mean, you know what? Behold, lo, uh, what? Do you know what that really means? Jesus is telling them this and he can probably feel exactly where they are. What? <laughs> and he says, behold, meaning, look, here's going to calm you down. Here is the big, big point of everything I'm saying. The big point of everything I'm saying is I'm going to be with you. Deep breath, everybody exhales. Oh, okay, good. I was always getting a little nervous there. I thought we were going to have to do this on our own. Do you remember when Peter, Andrew, James, and John were called to be apostles originally? Remember that? There's only one text of the four Gospels that gives us the details of the call. All the others just kind of go, uh, he was walking by the sea and he saw four guys that were fishing and he said, come on, come, come and follow me. And they all got out of the boat and followed him and you scratch your head and go... How'd that happen? But Luke 5 tells you something really interesting. It tells you that great story in which Jesus, the, 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 the four, Peter, Andrew, James, John, but what have they been doing all night? They've been fishing all night. How much have they caught? Big fat egg. Zero. And remember what Jesus tells Peter after he preaches to the people? He says, uh, scoot out a little bit and throw your net out. Remember what Peter says? Uh, Lord excuse me, you're a carpenter. I'm going to add lib here a little bit. <laughs> you are a carpenter. I am a fisherman. We've been fishing all night. Caught nothing. You know, uh, you need to mind your own business. Somehow, some way, Jesus gave him that look. 
when Peter said, we've been doing this all night and caught nothing, and you can just imagine Jesus looking at him and he going, but at your word, we will throw the net out. <laughs> but only because you said so. And they throw the net out and boom! Takes Peter a little while to figure it out. You know, those fish flopping there and the boat sinking and all this. Finally, Peter's the first one to say, whoa, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Oh, you're finally getting it, Peter. You've been hanging out with me for months and you're finally getting it. And what's Jesus' next words? I'm going to make you fishers of men. What's the message? Get beyond the cuteness of the text, the neat things there, and all of that. Get beyond the miracle. What did He just teach us? This doesn't happen because you fish. It happens because I say, throw the net out. Boom. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All right. Let's take a little journey with, in the Gospel Mark, you'll take a look in Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 35. This is just following text in chapter 3, where Jesus appoints the twelve among many who were following Him. And I want you to notice how Jesus begins to train the twelve. Basic training here. He's going to do something in a series of events to get them ready to understand what it means to be one of His disciples. Alright? First story. Chapter 4. Notice beginning at verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, He said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took Him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Let's just stop one second there. It is important to remember that when God gives a story, we call it a story, maybe that's not the best phrase for it, but when God tells us of an event, when He places it in His Scripture, it is not just something that is to be, oh, here's another little cute story about what happened. There are millions of events that God could have placed in His Bible. From Old to New Testament, we need to always remember, when God places an event there, there is a major purpose for it. He could have placed tons. Why did He place this one? Please, always ask yourself that question when you study. Why did He place this here? Not, wow, that's cool. Certainly it's cool. It's there. <laughs> but there's something beyond that. Why is it there? That has to be the question. So this is not just some casual thing where Jesus says, um, hey guys, let's go to the other side. If that were just a nonchalant event, Mark's not going to put that in there. How many times do you think during Jesus' three and a half year ministry did He and the apostles go back and forth across the Sea of Galilee? Probably tons of times. But He records this event and He does so on purpose. Now, if you are Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and certainly some of the other guys, and they say, Jesus says, get in the boat, let's go to the other side. Can you just imagine Peter and Andrew, James, and John? How many times have they been on the Sea of Galilee? Oh, all their life. Their daddy brought them on the Sea of Galilee when they were five years old. They're probably younger. 
teaching them what to do. They've been on that sea forever. This is like, Jesus says it. They're going, now that we can do. We can get you to the other side. You want to go to the other side? Here we go. Verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I want you to feel what it was like to be in that boat. Here are the fishermen in the boat. Okay? I can just see them thinking we've got things under control. Now, if I'm Matthew the tax collector, I've got to believe that I'm the first guy who says to Peter or one of the other fishermen, uh, dude, I don't think we have this together. Uh, we need to wake him up. <laughs> and you, you can see, you can see the fisherman going, we got this. He's a carpenter. We can do this. We have been on this sea a lot. But this isn't an ordinary windstorm. This is the biggest windstorm they have ever been in. This is the kind of storm that rises up quickly and often did on the Sea of Galilee, but this one is beyond even these guys' experience and even these fellows realize we're dead. We cannot shovel this water out of this boat fast enough. We're dead now. Go wake him up. By the way, do you notice he's asleep? Isn't that wonderful? He's like, uh, don't think the boat's going down with me in it. <laughs> he's asleep. Calm as he can be. <sighs> you you, you, you want to take a lesson right there. I mean, we could just say a lot about that, but enough said, right? <laughs> we, we, we need to take it easy. So they awake him. Look at Jesus' response. He stands up and he turns and he looks at the wind and the sea. And he treats the wind and the sea like unruly children. He rebukes it. That is weird. He rebukes wind and sea. And he says, paraphrase, stop it. Boom. Glass. He created that. And there being a bit of a pill. (laughs) And he says, you're scaring my disciples. Stop it. Boom. Like that. Then what does he do? Turns to the disciples and he says, why are you afraid? Good question. Why are you afraid? Have you no faith? Where is your faith? Faith in what? Faith in Christ. Faith in who He is. And of course, that was the point. When they see this and watch Him still this, they say, who is this? Ah! That's where your faith is. 
It isn't where it ought to be because you don't know who this is. All right. Lesson number one. You can't even cross the Sea of Galilee as an experienced fisherman if the Lord isn't in your boat. But it is amazing what can be done otherwise. Where's your faith? Why do you fear? Now look. You and I run into all kinds of situations as disciples. We have been called upon to do some of the great things in the kingdom that Jesus just talked about. Making disciples. That scare anybody? Duh! (laughs) Sure! Who's in your boat? Why are you so afraid? Where is your faith? I'm going to tell you, if if you are the kind of person who's never stepped out and led something, in other words, stepped into a territory where you haven't been before and said, I'm going to do this because I know this is what needs to be done. If you've never done that, you've never experienced the kind of fear that all leaders have. I can tell you, you're two shepherds. They may appear to you to be men who, man, they got it together. They don't got it together. (laughs) They're scared, as I am scared. Every time I stand up and say, folks, Let's start a neighborhood Bible study over here and let's start talking to our friends and see if we can do it. Who would be on board? I've done that many times in the congregation and my knees are knocking. And inside I'm scared that people are going to go, What? We ain't doing that. <laughs> Leaders, we step out because of confidence in the Lord. Not because we are we think we're anything. We know we're not. It's just that God is called. And we have to step out. And every single one of us here, you are every one of you here are a leader in one way or another. It may be just the leader in your family, the leader among your grandchildren, your children, or in a small group in, in your work or whatever. You can be a leader but it's going to take remembering who's in your boat. The whole night with you always, even in the <laughs> Critical. Let's look at the next one. Mark chapter 6 and verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from here. And if, any, if in any place will not receive you, you and they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out. And proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and he and healed them. Now, 
You've read that before. We call it the limited commission. Sending the disciples out in order to teach the lost sheep of the house of Israel, as Matthew's account would say. But tell me you don't read that and see something awfully goofy. Okay, I want you guys to go out. They start packing their bags. No, 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 no. Don't pack. (laughs) Well, we need some money. No, you don't need money. You're not going to divvy up the money bag? I mean, what are we going to eat? You don't need that. You don't need two tunics. Just go. And the scripture says, so they went. Message. You see, sometimes again, we read this and we just read right over it. And we just go, okay, he told them not to do that. So they didn't do it. And they went out and they found worthy people who took care of it. What are you supposed to learn from that? What were they learning from that? God will provide the resources. You never have enough. I don't care what's in your bank account. There's all kinds of situations where you and I do not have enough. Enough talent, enough ability, enough resources, enough whatever. But he said go. And so they went. And did God provide? Of course he did. Not a problem. We need to learn that God has the resources for us to go. Third scripture. Chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done, returned from the going out. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place for rest for a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got ahead of them. If I'm a disciple, I'm a little disturbed by that. I was hoping for some rest. (laughs) But there you go. Verse 34. Or verse, uh, uh, yes, 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away into to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now watch what Jesus does. He answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Now, from John's account, we learn an interesting situation. Philip seemed to have a calculator. And he's like, um, Here we go. Oh, Lord, that'd take two-thirds a year's wages to feed these people. What are you talking about? Do you think that when Jesus said you give them something to eat, that it was fooling around with them? You give them something to eat. And when they say, we don't have enough, Jesus, verse 38, teaches his lesson. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. John's account tells us they swiped a kid's lunch. (laughs) 
<laughs> hey, kid, what you got in the bag? <laughs> uh, five pancakes and a couple of anchovies. Great, we need them. <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of weird. And what do you have? Five loaves and a couple of fish. Jesus says, great. Tell everybody to sit down in various groups and get ready for dinner. Verse 39, He commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass, so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, He looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and He divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Have you ever considered what... Peter and Andrew are doing while Jesus is saying that's plenty have them all sit down for dinner and then he starts praying man I'm telling you I'm poking Andrew going what is he doing (laughs) this is crazy do you notice also that Jesus has the apostles serve the food notice that it's really important I would, you know, what we, what we, you already know what we do, right? We set it all up and say, everybody come by. That's a lot more efficient. No, no, Jesus says, you serve. Have them sit down and you serve. How many times did the 12 come and go? Go back to Jesus, get more. It just keeps coming, keeps coming, and they go out and they serve. What are they learning? They're learning to serve. They're learning who they are. And they're learning that what they had was plenty. The question isn't, do you have enough? The question is, what does the Lord have? Whatever you have is plenty. Remember when He said, if you just had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you would say to this mountain, be moved and cast in the sea, and it would? Remember that text? Now, how many times did an apostle throw a mountain in the sea? Uh, never. What was the point? The point is, if you just had that much, God can do the rest. What do we do? What do we say? How many times do we say things like, well, I don't, I don't think it'll work. <laughs> Never forget. When I moved to Fayetteville, Arkansas in 1997, I sat down with the elders and I said, uh, evangelism doesn't work here like it did in California. So let's try something different. How about we start some neighborhood Bible studies? We'll just start with one and see if it builds. And we'll just invite our neighbors to come to the study. First elder said, no. Second elder said, it won't work. I said, why? Because we ain't never done it that way before. I said, that's not a good answer. The third elder, who was a bombing pilot over Cambodia in Vietnam War, where he wasn't supposed to be, daring fellow, he said, "Uh, what we're doing now is not working. Why don't we try it? We did seven baptisms in seven months. Right out of neighborhoods. Wow. Look what God can do when we are sitting here thinking it won't work. Do you think I knew it was going to work? I didn't know it was going to work. I had no idea whether it was going to work. I figured that we're just a bunch of kluxes, but if we show 
the faith the Lord said to show. He'll provide the rest. And that's exactly what he does. And that's exactly what he does here. Fourth text. Chapter 6, 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. John's account again fills in a little gap here. After he feeds the 5,000, the multitude comes together and they want to immediately make Jesus a king. Jesus refuses. He's not going to be their economic king. It seems he's a bit upset about it in some way. He quickly dismisses the apostles, dismisses the multitude, tells the apostles, you get in the boat and go to the other side. Think about that command right there. You get in the boat and you go to the other side. Boom. Do it now. Jesus goes up on the mountain. When evening comes, he looks out across the sea. I don't know if this is miraculous or not, but he looks out and he sees them about midway, but they're stuck. The wind is against them and they can't get any further. And so what's Jesus do? Well, he immediately goes to them and helps them. No, he doesn't. He keeps praying. How long? All night. (laughs) And they're out there. All night. I'm telling you, I'm just laying down in the boat. Who cares where the boat goes? I'm going to sleep. But they are trying to do what the Lord said to do and get across the sea and they do not get there. And then about the fourth watch of the night, just before morning break, Jesus says, okay, time to go. Done with praying. He walks across the sea. He's going to walk past them. Did you see that? He's going to walk past them. Figure that out. He's going to walk past them. Why not walk when you instead of rowing? I mean, that's all there is to that. He's going to walk right on past them. And when they see him, they scream like a bunch of little girls and go, Wah! <laughs> and he says, look, don't worry. It's just me. John's account says when he steps in the boat, not only does the wind cease, they are immediately at land. Why those crazy little details? Who would think that up? Why does it happen that way? Message to the apostles. When I tell you to do something, good job. Keep trying to do it. Secondly, you're not going to get there without me. It's not about your strength. It's not about your resources. It's not about any of those things. When you and I are told to do the Lord's will, the one thing we can count on, It's all about Him. It's all about His strength. It's all about what He will do through us. Everything you're reading in the New Testament, book of Acts, sometimes just go through and read it rapidly and see how many times Luke emphasizes and the Lord did this and God did this and the Holy Spirit did this and the Lord did this and the Lord Lord was with them and the Lord and the Lord and the Lord. Has that stopped? 
No. We're still in that same situation. The Lord is doing this. What we get into is we get into the boat where the, as the apostles were saying things like, how can we do that? We don't have enough. If you have a grain of mustard seed, you've got enough. Now this same principle, by the way, is all the way through the Old Testament. And I'd like just to note with a couple of them very, very quickly here. In 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 13, you have a situation where Saul is in big trouble. You know, good old King Saul, who wasn't good. And he is in great distress. He has got a battle to fight against the Philistines. Do you know how many uh, men of war he's been able to muster? Israel has well over a million men of war. He's been able to gather 600. (laughs) You know why? Well, because back in chapter 13 and verse 19, we're told there's no blacksmith to be found in all the land because the Philistines wouldn't let them have any lest they make swords. And therefore, as verse 22 says, on the day of battle, there was no sword to be found in the hand of any of the people. Only Saul and Jonathan have a sword. Okay, you going to be in that battle? (laughs) okay here we go boys anybody got a sword no but boy I can hack their kneecaps there here we go Uh, don't get it look at chapter 14 verse 1 one day Jonathan son of Saul said to the young man who carried his armor come let us go up over, over to the Philistine garrison on the other side but he did not tell his father Down in verse 6, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Love his armor bearer. He says to him, Do all that's in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I'm with your heart and soul. He's nuttier than Jonathan. You bet. But did you hear what Jonathan said? Nothing can restrain the Lord from saving. Not by many, not by few. How many of us say, well, there's not many of us. How much can we do? You know, church is kind of small. How much can we do? It isn't about you. It isn't about me. It's about the Lord. I, when I went to Nashville, I was told by a number of different preachers, you've done evangelism in other places, but it won't work in Nashville. It's the buckle of the Bible belt. Everybody's churched. You'll never get classes like you did before. And I agree. I, I wouldn't. God would. For the past three years, I've averaged 12 Bible classes a week. And it isn't because I'm some kind of guru. My wife will tell you, I stumble all over myself trying to talk to a stranger. I just pushed myself to do it. But that's not how we got classes. We got Bible studies because Christians invited friends to neighborhood studies 
God opened doors. The other day, Tuesday evening, after Bible study in a woman's home, one of the guys that we have had studies with who came to one of our neighborhood studies four years ago walks up to me. He's, he's not a Christian. He thinks he is. He's not a Christian, but he's, he loves the Bible. He comes and he says, So, how do I start a Bible study? I rent out rooms in my house and we got like four other guys living with me and they need the gospel. How do I start a Bible study? And I said, well, here's how you do it. You say, I'd like to start a Bible study. He goes, well, cool. I'd like to start a Bible study. I said, great. I have Monday night bread. Would you like to do it then? He says, super. Who did that? Not me. I mean, that's nuts. That didn't just happen. grain mustard seed. What did he say? Behold, I will be with you. That's what happens. We just simply have to obey him. Little resources. I'm not very good. I can't talk very well. Of course you can't. How about Moses? How many excuses did he get? Five times God said go. Five times Moses is going, no. God says, I'll be with you. Moses is not good enough. God says, I'll be with your mouth. Teach you what to say. Moses, not good enough. God says, okay, I'll put it in Aaron's mouth and I'll be with both your mouth. Moses says, not good enough. God says, go. Oh, he's going to kill me if I don't. I guess I have to. And Moses was a really lousy leader, wasn't he? What made Moses a great leader? Because Moses was so good? Because God was so One of the things you, you and I have to always remember, you know, we teach our children about the heroes in the Bible. We talk about Hebrews 11, about the heroes of faith. Folks, none of them were heroes. There's only one hero in the Bible. Only one, and that's God. There are no other heroes. They are all nobodies that God made heroes. Without God, they're nothing. I mean, David, boy, he was great, wasn't he? He was so nothing that his own dad didn't bother to bring him in when Samuel is looking for a kid to anoint his king. And when, when Samuel goes, what, there's no more? And he goes, whoa, there is the kid out there taking care of the sheep. Samuel goes, because why is God doing that? He wants to use those who know they're nothing so that no one can boast. Hey, I'm nothing. Always have been. Always will be. God does the work. You just got to have faith to say, I will obey you because behold, I am with you even to the end of the world. And stick that on your mirror. <laughs> stick that on your refrigerator. Plaster it on your forehead. Behold, I am with you even to the end of the world. You remember remember the other Moses situation in Numbers 11? Remember that? People are murmuring for food. Right? We want meat. God says, okay, boy, you're God angry. 
He says, Moses, I'm going to give him meat to eat, but I'm not going to give it to him one day, two days, ten days, or twenty days. I'm going to give it to him for a whole month until it comes out there. Not. And Moses' answer is, uh, you can't do that. What are we going to do? Empty all the fish out of the sea? We got all the herds and flocks in the world going to be sacrificed in order to do that? You can't do that. And the Lord's answer is, is, is my arm short? Step back and watch. And he brings so much quail that they're hovering three feet above the ground for 20 miles around the camp. Watch me. Is the Lord's arm short? How many times have you accused the Lord of having a short arm? <coughs> I have. <laughs> like a dum-dum, I have. No. It's not about your resources. It's not about your power. You know, too many times we forget that with the Lord we can do anything that God has told us to do. We can do it. What has the Lord given you that seems too big? Some kind of sin in your life you need to overcome? Something's nagged you all in your life and you just keep letting it take control and now you've come to the point that you're so accustomed to it, you just figure it's part of your character and God just has to overlook it? No, sir. God expects that you can overcome because He's given you the strength. Is it some kind of growth thing? Have you stagnated? You just kind of leveled out your knowledge of God, your intensity toward God, your passion toward God, your love for God. Has it just leveled out? Has it just become ceremonial to you? Not good enough. Because God has given you the ability to do this. How about taking the first step to share the Gospel? You know what the first step is? It's a real simple step. Make a friend. Get out of our little circles. Make a friend. I don't mean a friend that you can wave out across the street as you leave home in the morning or come home at night. I mean somebody you eat with. Somebody you laugh with. Make a friend. We live in a world of lonely people. Facebook proves that. That guy who made that, he's made billions on lonely people. <laughs> Make a friend. So well, I'm a little scared. Sure. Why not? But behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. You know, I, I'm, I'm shocked about how many times we look like Israel when they went in the land of Canaan. Remember that in Judges chapter 1? You know, there's a whole bunch of texts beginning in verse 19 all the way down to the end of that chapter. I just want to look at three of them that illustrate this. They were supposed to drive out everybody. What does it say? Verse 19, chapter 1. And they drove out the inhabitants of the mountains, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. Is that the dumbest thing you ever read? <laughs> all of what do you think Egypt had? God parted the Red Sea. He killed the whole Egyptian army. I got chariots of iron. Verse 27. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beshia and its villages, or Tanakh and his villages. 
Gordor and its villages, or Iblim and its villages, Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. You know, you just have to lay down and start cracking up. That's the nuttiest thing you've ever read. And verse 34, and the Amorites, this is embarrassing. The Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, but they would not allow them to come down. <laughs> and if you have any doubt that all of that is bogus, when you get to chapter 2, God sends an angel that says, you're dead meat for not driving them out. Excuses, excuses, excuses. We have some giants in America. We got some intimidating folks. We got some obstacles that are so big. <coughs> Don't be like those Israelites. God said, Behold, I will be with you even to the end of the world. Let's be like Caleb. Ah, don't you love Caleb? 85 years old. Here I am this day, he says to Joshua. 85 years old. Now therefore, give me this mountain on which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there, and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I should be able to drive them out as the, as the Lord said. You, you see him say, I'm a real big, strong warrior. I can go drive. He says, if the Lord is with me, I will do it. And he does it. And the next verses say, Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb and the name of Hebron formerly was Kirjath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Anakim are the giants. Remember that? He's the greatest man among all the giants. Goliath, poop. He's nobody. He's the greatest man among all the Anakim. And Caleb goes, pow. Give it to me. Why? Because the Lord said I can have it. She'll love Caleb. Yes. 603,548 men of war died in the wilderness because they didn't have the faith of Joshua and Caleb. I'll tell you what, brothers and sisters, when you read Hebrews chapter 3 and he warns us about not being like them in the wilderness, he's not kidding. That's a lack of faith. I got a pound on my brain about that all the time. It's not easy to remind ourselves. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And that's exactly what we read this morning in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works where? in us. To Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen and amen. If there's any way we can help you, if you're not a Christian, please understand. He will be with you. He'll bring you through. It will not be easy. But the giants will be conquered. And God will be given His glory. If we can help you in any way, we'd glad to do so while we have this hand. If the name of the Savior is precious to you, if His care has been constant and tender and true, if the light of His presence has brightened your way, 
Bring it. 